name is Rory. I'm one of the student ministries pastors on the team here. And what you just saw was a little promotional video for something we like to call winter camp around these parts. Uh, little did I know that five years ago when Pastor Jake and I made our way over the Cascades to that small little Bavarian village uh, to scope out a warehouse and dream up a camp that uh, something really cool would take place. Uh, we did dream up a camp and then that first year we held a camp and we had about 180 students show up. Uh, the next year though, we had about 220. The year after that, we had 315. And last year, we had over 420 folks join us for camp over in Leavenworth. But here's the really cool part. Uh, we just uh, launched signups just a few weeks ago, and it's really cool because right now we're anticipating between 500 and 700 students showing up for camp. So super stinking cool. But here's the even cooler part about camp. Uh, this camp that we do in Leavenworth, it is not built on a foundation of a fancy speaker or a cool band or flashing lights. It's actually built on the foundation of some really cool adult leaders who we like to call our youth pastors. The reality is we are blessed as a church to have so many students come through our doors and call Overlake home. But I think the foundation of our success is that there is an army of about 100 volunteers who are youth pastors to all of those students. The reality is as well, a small staff uh, that we have here for our students, there's no way that we could know the hundreds upon hundreds of students uh, by name and know what's happening in their world and when their game is. But our army of adults leaders who are youth pastors to our students, they do. And that's why we've had so much success. And what's really cool is uh, just this next February, we're going to go over to Leavenworth. We're going to throw a big old party, but your students are going to be loved on so well because there are some trained leaders who are going to be youth pastors to them. So I'm super pumped, super excited. Uh, and parents, I would simply say this, uh, you've got to do anything short of sin to get your kids to camp, okay? Uh, if you send them to camp, I can 99% guarantee you're gonna come, uh, they're going to come home and you're going to have a different student who, uh, who came back home after uh, they went out. And students, you need to make sure that you get to camp because it will change your life. So uh, we are done with the infomercial now. Here's what I would like to do. Here's my goal today. Usually as a communicator, you have a specific goal that you want to go for. And I have a handful of goals, but here is the, the biggest goal I have for this morning. I simply want to create a space where we can all surrender to the spirit of Christ. I just want to create a space this morning where we can all surrender. We can lay it down and listen to the spirit of our heavenly father. And so if I do that today, I win as a communicator. Uh, so why don't we pray and we'll jump into this thing. Jesus, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to turn our theology into a biography this morning. Help us to not just be hearers of the word, but Lord, doers as well. And Lord, we also just want to lastly say thank you for your hand of favor on our beloved Seattle Seahawks. Lord, we love watching them beat the 40 winers. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Hey, uh, I want to start off by asking you a question. How many of you in this room have ever made an unwise decision? Unwise decision? All of us in this place. Some of you are thinking to yourself, yes, I'm sitting next to my unwise decision right now. Ooh, pastor joke. Uh, 
Maybe you were like this guy. I found this meme on Facebook a couple of days ago. Here's a man who went to Best Buy. He bought a brand new tent for $300, all in order to save $50 on a TV. Friends, that is an unwise decision. Uh, another unwise decision that I had the opportunity to uh, view was when uh, my friend was holding a barbecue the summer before our senior year in high school. It was kind of this big end of the summer bash and everybody went to his house and it was a big party. Only problem was he had ran out of kerosene to light the grill. And so instead of using kerosene, he decides that he's going to go into his garage and grab a can of gasoline. Now, while kerosene lights on fire, uh, my friend found out that today, uh, that day, that gasoline, it doesn't light on fire, it explodes. Um, needless to say, and this is a true story, they had to airbrush his eyebrows onto his senior photos. <laughs> it is crazy, crazy bad. That was an unwise decision. But the reality is I have made some unwise decisions as well. And I'd like to talk about one of those unwise decisions this morning, because it was perhaps the most unwise decision that I could make when it comes to spiritual things. A couple years ago, I started doing some master's work in the study of missional theology. As part of the curriculum, we had to do and, and read what I call a whole bunch of dead white dudes. Uh, and while they were dead white dudes, they happened to be dead white dudes who made a huge difference. Guys like Charles Spurgeon, who preached to over 10 million people in his lifetime and whose sermons were so good that one woman became a Christian after reading one page of his sermon that was wrapped around a, a, a chunk of butter that she had just bought. Then there was a guy named William Booth. Booth was a minister who gave up the comfort of his pulpit and decided to take his message to the streets where he could reach the poor, the homeless, the hungry, and the destitute. In 1865, he founded the Salvation Army with the mission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to meet human needs in his name without discrimination. To date, the Salvation Army has met tangible needs and shared the gospel with over a hundred million people around the world. Bet you're going to be dropping some more quarters in those red buckets, right? Then, then there was this guy, A.W. Milne. Over a century ago, Milne was a part of a band of brave souls who became known as the one-way missionaries. These missionaries purchased single tickets to the mission field without the return half. And instead of suitcases, they packed their few earthly belongings into coffins. As they sailed out of port and said goodbye to everyone they loved, everything they knew, they knew that they would never return home. In 1812, Milne set sail for a small set of islands in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had martyred every missionary who had gone before him. But Milne did not fear for his life. Why? Because he already died to himself. And for 35 years, Milne lived among a tribe there on that small island, on that small, small island and then when he died, Tribe members buried him in the middle of their village and they inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. These are powerful words. Said, when he came, there was no light. But when he left, there was no darkness. And as I read these stories, I was captivated by them. 
I was stirred. I longed to lead a life of kingdom impact just like these men had. And then one day I had this crazy aha moment. Uh, I was studying and then I, I realized something. Uh, I realized that I had been making a completely unwise decision. And not just an unwise decision, a flat out bad decision. And it came as I was reading the words of another old dead white guy named Philip Brooks. Many of you, you, you probably don't know Brooks, but you might know some of his work. He is the guy responsible for writing the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. But I know him for a different set of words. I know him for these words. Brooks said in the late 1800s, it doesn't take a great man to do great things. It only takes a consecrated man. It doesn't take great men to do great things. It only takes a consecrated, takes consecrated men. And it, you see, if, if you study church history long enough, you learn that the catalyst for any major movement of God, from Spurgeon to Luther to Booth to Milne, Moody, and more, it all revolves around this word, consecration. You see, any time that God is about to do something amazing in our lives or in the lives of people around us, he calls us to consecrate ourselves to him. And this was a pattern that was established thousands of years ago in the book of Joshua, right before the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and conquered the promised land. We read these words in Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. It says, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. But now the question is, what is consecration? Well, before I tell you what consecration is, let me tell you what it is not. Consecration is not going to church once a week. Consecration is not daily devotions. It's not fasting. It's not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not sharing your faith with your friends. It's not giving the tithe. It's not repeating the sinner's prayer. It's not volunteering for ministry. It's not leading a small group. It's not raising your hand during worship. It's not even going on a mission trip. See, all of these things, they are good things, and they are necessary things, but they are not consecration. See, consecration is much more than behavior modification. It's much more than conformity to some sort of moral code. It's much more than doing good deeds. It's something much deeper than that, something much truer. The word consecrate, it means to set yourself apart. It means full devotion. It means dethroning yourself and enthroning Jesus Christ. It means complete divestiture of all self-interest. It means surrendering all of you to all of him. It means recognizing that every second of time, every ounce of energy, every penny in your bank account is from him and for him. One author writes that consecration is an ever-deepening love for Jesus, a childlike trust in the heavenly father and a blind obedience to the Holy Spirit. Friends, consecration is all of these things and a thousand more. But for today's purposes, I want to make things really simple and just give you a definition, a working definition of consecration. And if there's one thing that maybe you hold on to today, I pray that it's this. And to be honest, I completely stole this, but I think it's real good. Uh, the definition of consecration, if you're following along in your handout, you can write these words down. Consecration is going all in 
all out for the all in all. Consecration is going all in and all out for the all in all. You know, one of my greatest concerns as a pastor is that people like us, like myself, we can go to church every weekend of our lives and still never go all in with Jesus. In other words, we can be bought in, but not sold out. We can become content playing church, never realizing that God has called us to be the church. And friends, I have a newsflash for all of us, again, myself included. Jesus didn't die so that we could play it safe. No, he didn't die in order that we would play it safe. He died in order that we could live dangerously for him. And we will live dangerously for him if we will consecrate ourselves to him, if we will go all in and all out for our all and all, and then just watch. Just watch. If we were to do that, watch God do amazing things among us. So now what I'd like to do is answer the question, how do we go all in? How do we consecrate ourselves? Where do we even start? I think we start this consecration process by taking on the posture of a party crasher. And we find this party crasher in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 38. And what we're going to do right now is we're just going to look at three verses And then we're going to make three observations, and then I'm going to ask three questions. And what you need to understand about this passage of Scripture is this is just a small chunk of a much larger story that we read in Luke chapter 7. But again, I just want to zero in for today's purposes and look at three verses, three observations, and three questions, and then we'll be done. But we jump in in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's house for a party. Verse 36 says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And so Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought him an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. My friends, this is kind of a, an odd story. And let me caution you on something. When you read a story like this and you're reading the Bible, don't check your sense of humor at the door. Because if you do, you're going to miss out on some great situational comedy. And right here, this is a classic. I mean, think about it. They are at a Pharisee's house having a party. This is oxymoron. Like it's got oxymoron written all over it. Pharisee party. That that doesn't make sense. You got to think to yourself, this party had to be the most lame party in human history. A Pharisee party. How fun could that be? Small talk about Pharisaical Sabbath law. No DJ, no punch, and definitely no pigs in blankets because it would have totally been unkosher. Like... (laughs) This party had lame written all over it, and then something happens. A woman enters the room. She walks in, but this is not just any woman. This is a woman who had lived a sinful life. That phrase, the word sinful life, if you were to study the Greek behind it, you'd understand that it meant habitually immoral, 
the kind of lifestyle where her whole life revolved around sin. Most likely this meant that this woman was a prostitute. And so the Pharisees see what's happening and what do you think they do? They see this woman walk into the party and what do they do? I think they begin to blush. But Jesus, I think Jesus gets a twinkle in his eye because he knows it's about to go down. It's about to get as fun as like healing on the Sabbath up in here. Like it's going to get real fun real, real quick. You see, it would have been a complete and utter understatement to say that this woman was not welcome at this dinner. Heck, she wasn't even welcome in her own town. Most of the town in Jesus' days were very small communities, usually a hundred people or less, sometimes like really small, like 10, 12 people. And I've never lived in a small town. Some of you have, but you might better know that living in a small town, it's really easy to get the, the uh, gossip grapevine swinging, right? And if you've ever been the victim of small town gossip, you know how much courage it took for this woman to do what she did. And so what did she do? She straight up crashes this party. She straight up crashes the party. And this leads us to observation number one. This woman went all in. This woman went all in. A few months ago, my wife and I were perusing Netflix, trying to find a movie to watch after we put our boys to bed. I found The Expendables. She found We Bought a Zoo. Gentlemen, uh, what movie do you think we watched? Yeah, we watched We Bought a Zoo, and here's the truth. If you are single in this place, you need to understand, this is such a cliche statement, but it's such a true statement. Happy wife, happy life. It works every time. So while this movie was a negative three on the manliness scale, I have to admit that there was this one line that absolutely captivated me. This movie is about a real-life British author named Benjamin Mee, who's a new widower, and his family decides to take over this defunct zoo and try to save it. And one day, he's having a conversation with his son, who is having some girl problems, and he delivers this line to his son. He says... Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, just literally 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery. And here's the deal about a line like that. That is not just a great line from a well-written screenplay. That is a line that can change the plot line of your life. And so I want to pause for a moment and ask our first question. When was the last time you employed 20 seconds of insane courage for the cause of Christ? When was the last time you did something embarrassingly brave for Jesus? I want to uh, shout out one of my students before I do that, let me give you some backstory. Our student ministry has been coming alongside uh, this family who has a young daughter named Cassidy Amber. Cassidy has got a handful of medical difficulties. And uh, quite frankly, because of that, the medical bills are beginning to mount up. They literally have boxes full of medical bills, so much so that it looks like this family is going to lose their house. 
A couple weeks ago, we found out that the family was on the brink of losing their house. And as a student ministries, we just committed to doing everything that we possibly could as a ministry to make sure that that didn't happen. So we kind of pitched this to our leaders and we pitched this to our students and we said, hey, I know we all don't have a lot of money, but whatever we have, let's bring it. And it's been really, really cool to see what God has done. We've had students who have thrown birthday parties and asked not for gifts, but for money. And again, not money for themselves, money for this family. We've watched small groups have car washes for this family in order that they could donate any of the proceeds to this family. And then we had one student, his name's David. In fact, he was just up here leading worship. David heard Cassidy's story, and the next day he found out that he won a trip to go to downtown Seattle with a handful of other high schoolers from local high schools. And they would go down to this hotel in Seattle, they'd have this fancy lunch, and they would have this fancy lunch with the CEO of Google. And if you were to Google the CEO of Google, you would find out that the CEO of Google is worth $30 billion dollars. So David knows about the story of Cassidy Amber, and he knows that this man has got a huge net worth. And so he goes down and he enjoys lunch. They have this great Q&A session, and then he does something embarrassingly brave. At the end of their time, David walks up to the CEO of Google, and he begins to share Cassidy's story with the CEO of Google. And as he begins to share this story, he just begins to ask him, hey, does Google like come alongside anybody hurting like this? Like, I know you probably get a lot of asks for philanthropic work, but is there anything that we can do? Because I know you have the means. All it would take is you just pulling out your checkbook and you could solve this problem. Heck, you could buy this house for this family. So he strikes up this conversation and I'd love to be able to stand here right now and say, well, Google just bought their house for them. That didn't happen. But what's really cool is he did get a next step. And right now he's in the process of following up with Google and, and all because he just stepped out in faith and did something embarrassingly brave for Jesus. And I'm just dreaming that Google's gonna like send him an email and say, guess what? We're covering this for this family. How, how cool is that? Just stepping out in faith. It was a lot like this woman This woman did something embarrassingly brave by crashing this party, this party where she was not welcomed or wanted. And then she had the audacity to approach Jesus. And then she brings with her a container of perfume. It was an alabaster jar filled with pure nard, a perennial herb that is harvested in the Himalayas, half a liter of it, no less. The jar itself was made of semi-translucent gemstones and may have been a family heirloom. Either way, it was an important commodity in her line of work. However, she was no longer in business. That's because somewhere along the way, she had an encounter with Jesus. He had touched her, but not in the way that other men had touched her. He had noticed her, but again, not in the way that other men had noticed her. You see, somewhere along the way, she had a powerful encounter with Jesus Christ, with his grace with his mercy, with his forgiveness. Somewhere along the line, her life had been changed by him. Some scholars speculate that this woman may have been Mary Magdalene, a woman who was released from demon possession, as we read in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. But the truth is, we don't know this woman's name, but we do know her true identity. She was a forgiven, precious 
treasured child of God. She was no longer defined by what she did. Her past had been erased. Her guilt and shame, it was now wiped away. Her body was no longer for sale because God had purchased her soul. And now she walks into this room uninvited and she just explodes with unbelievable gratitude. I wanna ask you another question in this moment. When was the last time that you just exploded, your heart erupted with unbelievable gratitude for Jesus? When I think about that question, two other questions come to my mind. The first question is, what was my life like before I met Jesus? And the second question is, well, what does my life look like now that I've met him? And when I ask myself those two questions and I see the stark contrast in my life, I can't help but well up inside with gratitude for my king who has saved me from a life that I was derailing. And maybe in this moment, you would take some time to ask yourself those questions. Who were you before you met Jesus? Who are you now that you've met him? And then you can look at the disparity there and you say, thank you, God. You can erupt with unbelievable gratitude. This leads us to observation number two. Not only did this woman go all in, but then she also went all out. In fact, she poured it all out. You see, this alabaster jar represented not only her past guilt, but also her future hope. It represented both her professional identity and her financial security. Plain and simple, this jar was her most precious possession. So how ironic, yet how appropriate, that the perfume she used in her profession as a prostitute would now become a token of her profession of faith in Jesus. And what did she do? She poured it all out. She poured it all out at his feet. On April 21st, in the year 1519, the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortez sailed into the harbor of Veracruz, Mexico. He brought with him only 600 men. Over the next two years, his vastly outnumbered forces were able to defeat Montezuma and all the warriors of the Aztec Empire, making Cortez the conqueror of all Mexico. How was this incredible feat accomplished when two prior expeditions had failed to establish a colony on Mexican soil? Here's the secret. Cortez knew that he and his men faced incredible odds. They were outnumbered 7,514 to 1. And he knew that the road before them would be a dangerous and difficult one. He knew that his men would be tempted to abandon their quest and return to Spain. So as soon as Cortez and his men came ashore and unloaded their provisions, he ordered his men to burn the ships, all 11 of them. His men then stood on the shore and watched as their only possibility of retreat burned and sank. And then from that point on, they knew that there was no retreat. There was no turning back. Nothing lay behind them but empty, empty sea. Their only option now was to go forward or die. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about this story in contrast to this woman, I begin to think that this woman breaking her alabaster jar of perfume was her way of burning the ships. 
It was her way of burning the ship. See, there was no more masking the stench of sin with the sweet scent of perfume. There was no more risque rendezvous in the wee hours of the night. There was no more clandestine encounters at discreet places. No, this woman walked out of the dark shadow of sin and into the light of the world. Friends, there comes a moment for all of us when we need to come clean. There comes a moment when we all need to unveil the secret shame of sin. There comes a moment when we all need to fall full weight on the grace of God. And so here's a statement that I hope all of us can take to the bank this morning. It's something that I think this woman understood that night she crashed the party. And it's this. Jesus doesn't love good people. He actually only loves bad people. Jesus doesn't love good people. He only loves bad people. Romans 3.23, it says, For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, every single one of us in this room, we have all missed the mark. In God's eyes, in our Heavenly Father's eyes, we have become stained by sin and we are now imperfect. But here is the good news of the gospel. We find it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means Christ left his throne in heaven. He stepped across the cosmos. He came to this planet fully God, fully man. And then he walked and he suffered just like many of us have suffered. He lived in this broken, dark, dying world. And then at the age of 33, he did something insane. Although he walked this earth like many of us have walked this earth, he did it without sin. And at the age of 33, he stapled himself to a tree to become our perfect sacrifice. And on that tree, he bled and he died. And the Bible says that the blood of Jesus covers all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness. Every time we've missed the mark, Jesus covered that on the cross. And here's the even better news. He died on that cross. Then he went to a grave. But three days later, he rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death for all time. It's crazy. It's crazy good news. And then I love this. So as I was thinking about the good news of Jesus, I came across this passage. Many of you have heard this, but you see Jesus' heart. It's in Luke chapter 5, 31. It says, Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Friends, this is what our great God and Savior has come to do. He hasn't come for the good people. He's come for the bad people. And the good news is that all of us are bad, and Jesus has come for each and every one of us. And if we will consecrate ourselves, if we will surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, the Bible says he will save you, and he will give you an abundant and everlasting life. It's crazy good news, friends. It's news that this woman, she had a grasp on that night. So this woman, what does she do? Well, she packs her coffin. She burns the ship. She pours it all out because there was no turning back for her. It was all Jesus now. And then this woman, she does approach Jesus. She breaks the bottle. And then the Bible says she begins to cry. The Greek word here for cry is the same root word as for rain. It says that this woman is sobbing. Her face is raining. 
she is crying so much. One scholar said this, she shed a tear for every single sin that she had ever committed that night. And so she falls onto the floor at Jesus' feet. She caresses his feet in her hands. He, her tears are raining onto his unwashed feet, leaving wet spots in the dust, and she lets her hair down. Now, you need to understand that no woman ever did this in public. This was grounds for capital punishment in that society. But again, she doesn't care. She was all in. She was pouring it all out. And for who? For her all in all. And this leads us to observation three. Yes, this woman, she was all in. She crashed the party. Then she poured it all out. Literally her past, her present, and her future. It was now all Jesus's. And why did she do this? Well, she did it for her all in all. She went all in and all out for her all in all. And here she is. She's lying on the floor. She's an emotional mess. She's crying, rubbing Jesus' feet, pouring perfume, kissing her hair down. She comes absolutely undone in public. And the smell of perfume and the smell of humility and the smell of forgiveness and gratitude, the smell of sweet surrender, it begins to fill the air. As you picture this scene, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, how humiliating. What an embarrassing display of emotion. Listen, this woman, she had been humiliated most of her life. She's been embarrassed most of her life. She's felt unloved. She's felt used up most of her life. Now for the very first time in her life, she feels free and she just gets overwhelmed. Absolutely overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with forgiveness overwhelmed with mercy, overwhelmed with an opportunity to start her life anew and consecrate it to her king. Friends, she had gone all in and she had poured it all out for her all in all. We started this message looking at a passage in Joshua chapter three, verse five. It said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. What is so cool about this story is that Christ did do amazing things among this crowd of Pharisees, but also in the life of this woman. There's a, a term that we use when we study theology. It's that scripture interprets scripture. And there are some scholars that believe that this account we read in Luke is also found in the other gospels. And at the end of one of these stories in the book of Matthew, talking about this woman, Jesus says these words. They're powerful, all-encompassing words. It started in Joshua when he simply said, hey, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. I'm going to do amazing things among you. And then watch as Jesus fulfills this in this woman's life. He's talking about this woman and he says, truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Today, we're at 9900 Willows Road Northeast in Redmond, Washington. This particular situation happened 2,000 years ago, yet today we are talking about it in this church. My guess is somewhere in the United States, somewhere around this world, this story is also being proclaimed. And it's being told as a testimony to this woman's faith, to a woman who was fully consecrated to her king, and it's done amazing things. Can you imagine just all the times that this story has been preached, the people who have come to faith through this story, through this woman's story?
simply because she went all in and all out for her all in all. So now I want to ask you the final question. When was the last time you went all in and all out for your all in all? When was the last time you surrendered yourself fully to the Lordship of Christ? To be honest, when I was thinking about this, I had to go back in the recesses of my memory. Kind of bummed me out how far I had to go back. I had to go back to when I was 12 years old. I had just met Jesus. I met Jesus at a Christmas Eve service in 1995. The preacher got up there and he just preached the gospel and it was one of those things where your heart is just beating outside of your chest and you knew you had to respond to that good news. It was that good. Shortly after receiving Jesus, I got plugged into the youth ministry here at Overlake. I got into a small group and then shortly after that, my mom got me this little blue Bible. And to be honest, I had no idea how to read this thing. I was getting caught up in all the genealogies, the these and thous. I, I didn't understand this thing at all. But I went to one of my small group leaders and I asked him, hey, how do you read this thing? And, and he taught me a few things about how to understand what I was reading. And so I started really digging in. And I remember vividly this season of my life. is right when I started middle school. My house was just right around the corner from Kamiakin Middle School. And I would uh, grab my Bible each morning and I'd make my way around the corner and then up past the tennis courts. And I would just have my face just planted in God's word. And it was so cool because that five, six, seven minutes of time each and every day was so powerful for me. It was like God's presence was all over me in that short window of time. And as I was reading scripture, it was like God was speaking to me. It was such a powerful time. And I remember that season of my life. That was the season in my life where I would just go into my school and like if I felt the Holy Spirit just prompt me to pray for somebody, I would just do it. If the Holy Spirit wanted me to invite somebody to church, I'd just do it. Like if there was a need that needed to be met, I was just ready to do it. It was like God opened my eyes to the needs around me. It was such a rich and powerful time. And then somewhere along the line, I lost it. I don't know if it was in the transition to high school and you start thinking about status and grades and what college you're going to go to, but, but I lost it. And my guess is some of you, you're sitting in here today and you're saying to yourself, you know what, I think I've lost it. The reality is I'm not going all in. I'm not going all out for my all in all. There is good news this morning. And the good news is that all of us in this space, we are just one decision away from a completely different life. All of us, we are just one decision away from a completely different life. The reality is it does not take great men to do great things. It only takes consecrated men, or should I say women, to do great things. And if you will consecrate yourself to the Lordship of Christ, if you will go all in and all out for the all in all, if you will decide that today, it's not an easy decision, but it's one decision. And if you will do that, watch. And God will do amazing things among us. As I was thinking about how to close things down, I was thinking about how do we respond to a message like this? After hearing this woman's story, after seeing the way that she responded, after we saw her pour it all out and go all in with Jesus, what does it look like for us as a church body to respond to a message like this? And uh, kind of thought up an experiment. 
And just imagine with me, imagine if each of us in this room today, over the course of the next 30 days, 30 days, which really should be all about Jesus anyways, but what if we committed in the next 30 days, this month of December, what if we committed to consecrating ourselves to Christ? What if we, as a church body, we said, you know what? We're going to go all in and all out for our all in all on an individual level and then as a corporate level. Can you imagine the amazing things that God would do in and among us and through this church if we were to do that? It's absolutely mind-bending to think about that if you really pause and think. And so that's the challenge for all of us in this space today. The challenge is to consecrate yourself, to pack your coffin, to burn the ships, change the plot line of your life and go all in and all out for your all in all and then watch the amazing things that God would do among us. So I started this sermon, I said, my goal today was simply to create a space, a space where we could surrender to the spirit of Christ. And I need you to understand something. God's spirit is in this place right now. And if you will surrender your heart to him right now, he will speak to you. And it might not be this loud, audible voice. It might just be that little whisper. It might be that still, small voice in your head. And you might ask yourself, why does God always seem to speak that way? I simply think that he speaks in whispers because he's close to us. So he speaks to us and he's speaking in this moment and in this space. And if you will allow him to speak to you right now, if you surrender yourself to him, he will speak to you. And then I encourage you to heed his word. For some of you, he's probably speaking, you know what? I, I need to go all in and I need to go all in in the area of my finances. And I know we get so worried when we talk about money, but I'm just simply saying, some of you, he's saying, go all in with me when it comes to your finance, some of you, you say, go all in and start serving somewhere. Maybe it's Eastside Academy as a mentor. Maybe you think you're too old to plug in and start serving. You know what? If you're not dead, God is not done with you. And so you can get plugged in. There are people who need your wisdom in their life. Some of you, he's, he's speaking something else to you. For each of us on an individual level, it's probably different. But corporately, if we all heeded God's voice today, we would walk out and God would do amazing things among us. And so I want to create that space right now. In just a moment, we're going to begin to worship again. We're going to collect our tithes and offerings as we always do. But after we do that, I want you to surrender yourselves in this space right now and just listen to the whisper of God. And then let me encourage you, heed his whisper. Surrender yourself to him and watch God do amazing things among you and among this church. Let's pray. Jesus. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity, this sacred opportunity we have to come before your throne and consecrate ourselves to our king. And Lord, I do pray that the story of Overlake would be a story of surrender to you. Even in this next 30 days, would you do amazing things in and through us, God? Because we have chosen to surrender ourselves to you, to consecrate ourselves to you, to go all in and all out for you. Jesus, we love you and we thank you once again for this time. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen.